You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Kaiju Curry House, the fortnightly show that gives you a healthy dose of kaiju goodness every other Monday. My name is Paul Williams and I'm here with my co-host Joe, along with an amazing five guests who have all been involved in or on the recently released Tremors documentary Making Perfection. Uh, That was available since October on YouTube. And it will also be included in the upcoming 4K remaster of Tremors being released in December by Arrow Video. Now, I think just so our listeners get an idea of who we're speaking to, could we just go around the table and you all introduce who you are and what your involvement was in the documentary, please? Should we start with you, Matthew? Sure. Uh, (laughs) I'm Matthew Smead and I write and directed Tremors Making Perfection. Hi guys, I am Juan Leon, and um, I was the producer of the documentary, um, working along with Matthew. Uh, I'm Ian, Ian Thomas Day, and I was the editor, uh, along with, uh, in the team of Nemerin with Juan. Hi, my name is Eric Walter, and I was the uh, cinematographer for the original footage that we captured for the film. And I'm Alec Gillis, I am the uh, co-designer of the worms, the graboids, in the first through fourth films third films i can't remember how many of them i worked on okay i would say up to four i think it was on imdb it said (laughs) (laughs) we'll go with that (laughs) okay uh well thank you gentlemen all for joining us today uh before we get into all the questions regarding the documentary we'll kick off with our little icebreaker of what have kaiju been up to so i'm just going to start off and ask joe what have kaiju been up to well, howdy, everybody. Um, I have not been to too terribly much. Uh, it's been uh, rather long on the old workday uh, this past week. But what I have managed to do is binge the Netflix series Blood of Zeus. It had Greek myths in it, and I had a little bit of time to kill. So I turned it on, and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, it has a very Castlevania vibe to it, but it uh, it does a lot for Greek myths, and I think that a lot of the characters represented in those Greek myths, Zeus, Hermes, Hera, they all stay pretty true to their roots. And I was also pleasantly surprised to see a lot of Ray Harryhausen uh, homages, I guess you could say, in the series. Talos and Bubo the Owl, uh, the original uh, sound effects for those characters are used in the show. And a lot of the mannerisms and posings for those two characters are used in the show. And I was very happy to see that. Does it have kaiju in it? Yes, there are all manner of strange beasts in that show. So if you're 15 or older in the UK, I would give it a hearty recommend. And uh, yeah, it was quite fun. So Alec, I will pick on you because all the stuff behind you is simply amazing. I can't help myself, all the props. What have you been up to that is monster related? Well, um, you know, on a professional front, we have been plucking away at a couple of smaller jobs that came in pre-COVID and we were basically paid up for. So we did the lockdown and the shutdown. And after 
however many months, um, I extended the offer to my crew uh, if they felt comfortable to come back. We have a decent uh, size studio so they could distance and et cetera, et cetera. So we have a kind of a skeleton crew going now, um, knocking away at those things. I can't tell you exactly what those things are because of NDAs. But the super exciting thing that I did was a quarantine sculpture. Um, I started it at home, uh, you know, came in and I grabbed a bunch of supplies and brought them back at, on my um, <clears throat> table out of my back patio and started sculpting. And um, it's a little bit, uh, when you mentioned kaiju, it is sort of a free form. I did it like I do would do things in the 80s where I kind of did a crappy line drawing and then just built an armature and started sculpting using some uh, uh, an epoxy, uh, two-part epoxy clay that I've never used before or never used to this extent. And See, when um, you said you were making a COVID sculpt immediately, I thought the mediums that you were going to use were like toilet paper and ramen, but you know, no, 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 for being that, professional that, all through. Yeah, no, this is, this is all like the highest of high tech, um, uh, for, for me. And I hate it. I, do, I don't like the sculpture at all. It's not turning out well. So my solution is, since I don't really have a design, is I'm just sticking more shit on it. Now, at this point, it's got six arms. The jaws have gotten crazy They're just everywhere. I'm putting these big delicate flanges all over it in the hopes that when the viewer sees it, they will be tricked into thinking that it's a good design, you see. But it's really like the Winchester house. As long as I add something to it every day, I think I'll continue to live. Otherwise, the ghosts of uh, bad kaiju movies will come back and kill me. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we'll have to see it when it's finished. No, you won't. Oh. <laughs> no, I'll let, I'll, I'll let the world see it. I like to just bear my dirty laundry. This is not my best work. Well, now that you've gone through that, you get to subject someone else to what they've been up to. Oh, I want to hear from Matthew, because uh, we had a great time working on this. So I'd love to hear. Well, I, I can't believe I forgot this, but I, I did just see for the very first time the original Universal Frankenstein movie a couple of weeks ago, um, which, to my shame, I'd never seen. And it, it blew me away. It's such an incredible movie. Um, the cinematography, the direction, the Carlos is just, adorable in it and just it it's it's so wonderful and and i was reading it actually about it today because we're doing some work at universal with the uh, classic monster movies right now on youtube and um, i was researching it and and you know the scene where they where carlos throws the little girl into the lake and she drags really famous scene that was actually cut by the censors um when it first came out so when you see the movie now that's it's been restored back but it was too frightening um, at the time so that's probably the most uh, monstery thing that I've done recently but it is an incredible film and it's part of an incredible series of of those classic monster movies so I'm going to have to ask uh, the movie Frankenstein and the book Frankenstein similar but quite different. Had you read the book before you saw the film? No, I I'll tell you what, it, it, it's very similar to watching Jurassic Park and reading Jurassic Park, if I could equate yeah. it to anything. There are wild yeah. deviations from what you see on film. And I think if you enjoyed the movie, you will be 
pleasantly surprised by the book because it is a masterpiece. But there should always be wild deviations in movies. And that's, um, you need big deviants. That's why we had Alec in our documentary. <laughs> you see, that is why I picked on Matthew. Because we had so much fun together. I knew he would not disappoint me. Thank you, Matthew. So Matthew, have you done, have you done any Gilman related stuff or a huge fan here? Uh, I don't think so. No. Creech always gets left out. It's not fair. Oh no. All right. Well, now you get to pass the buck. Who's it going to be? I'm going to choose Eric. Boy, I feel the, uh, the hot seat pressure now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've just been doing, uh, some of the classic Netflix binging. Um, I think the last uh, monster movie I saw was the uh, 2014 Godzilla. Um, rewatched. Um, I love that film actually from a cinematography standpoint because it's just so beautifully shot. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that was kind of the last uh, step into that world that I've uh, I've seen recently. As a cinematographer, did you have a top two or three scenes? Uh, for me, I really love the Pacific Northwest stuff. It's just like the emotion they capture there is just so beautiful and through the trees and just, it's very tasteful to, to know what to light and when to allow things to go to shadow. to tell the, the best story possible. Well, that, okay. that's, that's surprising. I like that because I, I would have imagined a lot of people would have said the uh, jump scene where they've got yeah, the uh, flares. And the flares going through there. There's something, I, I think for me, it's a little bit, it feels a little visual effect. So I, I leave that to the visual effects wizards uh, for that one. I, I like to have my feet squarely planted on the ground, you know? Yeah, so the trains, basically the train scene, Pacific Northwest, and then like the, uh, yeah, the railroad trucks. gunfire over the hill and everything setting a scene. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Okay. Well, you know what you get to do now. <laughs> Great. I will uh, pass it on to, to you, Juan. Hey, Okay, so during quarantine, because I had so much time, um, I decided to rewatch a lot of stuff that I had already seen that I loved uh, as a teenager. I had a um, horror film club, and uh, I rewatched the whole of the Freddy series, oh, which, nice. uh, um, you know, when sometimes you watch something and um, it's just not as good as you remembered it, especially with, you know, sitcoms and stuff that we used to love. And uh, I was just pleasantly surprised I wasn't that case. Um, I still love the campness of this. I, I still recognize the 11-year-old um, uh, and the 12-year-old when I was watching this film. So it was really nice to be able to just like indulge in this and uh, enjoy all the camp lines that he was delivering when he was, uh, you know, with the gruesome killings, especially on Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Um, and then because I love that so much, then I went through Chucky. So I watched all of the Chucky's from, from, uh, from the first one till the last one, including the remake. Um, and, uh, yeah. And likewise is that mixture of the gruesome, the horror and the high camp, uh, lines. Um, that's definitely what, uh, kept me going for, for a few days during the lockdown. How many Chucky films are there? whole life. <laughs> How many? Two? So there's there's uh, there's Child's Play one, two, and three. Then there's a uh, Bride of Chucky, Seed of Chucky, Curse of Chucky, um, and I think that's the last one. And then there's a remake, okay, uh, Child's Play, which 
if you love the franchise, of course, you're going to enjoy it because it's a sealed jacket. But of course, it's basically like an Alexa. It's a, it, there's not a human soul in the toy. It's, a, it's just a, a manufactured uh, a toy that uh, an angry uh, manufacturer just reprograms to make it evil because he's been mistreated in, this, uh, in the production chain. Um, so it, 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 it does have, you know, all the good production values, uh, yeah, that didn't really hit the spot for me. It was missing the the essence of, of the killer, basically. It just felt like, you know, a crazy Alexa trying to murder you and your friends. It's just an adult version of Small Soldiers, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what ruined uh, Friday the 13th for me? Meeting Robert England, because he is just such a lovely person. He's so uh, nice. He's so nice. Is he? Yeah, yeah. He was uh, down here at the at the local Comic Con, and um, I just stopped, and met him, and you know, just like talked to him while he was signing stuff and everything. And he's just salt of the earth, lovely guy. And like, no matter, I mean, he's lovely. He's a great actor and stuff. But I'd seen the Freddy movies up until that point, and then you meet him, it's just like, oh, you're sweet. Well, That's nice. It would be weird if he tried to kill you. <laughs> it's just funny you know like your perception shifts like oh well you know like and i have this totally new viewpoint of who you are but it's just one of those fun things and uh yeah he, he was a genuinely lovely human being and uh he was great he talked to everybody he, he was a really cool dude yeah anyways juan now you get to pick one of the remaining gentlemen so, who is the geekiest here? Like, ah, uh, Ian, 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 Thomas Day. <laughs> am, am I the geekiest here? I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I, I haven't been watching a whole ton of horror. I've been watching a ton of like classic action movies. Uh, I watched Rambo 3 the other day, and it's just glorious when he drives a tank into a helicopter to, um, you know, cap the movie off. Uh, uh, he is a kaiju, it, Sloan. It, it, pause. <laughs> How does a tank need a helicopter? Well, the helicopter's, for some reason, it's on the ground, right? way too low. It's, it's, he's, he's flying along the ground and giving uh, Rambo the opportunity to, indeed, smash his tank into him. It's, it's, it's one of the best endings to a movie uh, I, I've seen. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Jean-Claude Van Damme stuff. I just watched Ninja 3, The Domination, um, which is a classic canon kung fu movie. Um, I'm just watching these because it's just, you know, dumb fun. I did at Halloween watch the Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a um, an interesting approach to the the Dracula tale. The, they didn't really hit it out of the park with that one. So, But it was it's still a campy, fun watch. I love young, young and hate that movie. Yeah, um, Richard. Uh, I want to say I'm gonna mispronounce his name, even though I've said it a million times. Ricardo de Galdo, Gallo, the fellow that did Age of Reptiles. Uh, he's done Lord knows how much uh, work on sketches and um, rendering characters, so they can go to your stage, Alec. Um, he has uh, recently uh, put together a fully illustrated and contemporary version of Dracula, which is going to be releasing, I think, in December. But I've been seeing the art for it coming up, and it is 
absolutely fantastic. Get a chance if you like Dracula and vampires, give that a go because he has a wonderful imagination. And I think he's a great visual storyteller as well because Age of Reptiles, um, he that that whole story there's no dialogue all the stories actually he's done a couple now and um it's just a story told by dinosaurs through their eyes and if you could do something like that and then be able to take on such a uh dialogue rich uh novel such as dracula i mean i think there's a lot going on there but i'm really excited for that so fun times a good shot with dracula paul your last mate Tell us what you've got. Everybody's stolen all your thunder. We've yeah. got so many good things. <laughs> well, I said it was my birthday since we last recorded, and I was gifted a graboid, which <laughs> seems <laughs> worthy of a mention here. Um, I just wish I had it to show you, but yeah, I don't know the moment. It's um, it's a it was quite quite big, uh, a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be, and um, yeah, it's now taking pride of place in my man cave. So very happy to receive that uh i also got a couple of books um by joe devito um i got king kong skull island both the wall and exodus so uh, we had joe devito on uh, not that long ago to talk about his work on king kong and he just has such a passion for it um but i really wanted to delve deeper into that universe he's created so i put them on my wish list and lo and behold they arrived for my birthday so i am yeah gonna have a lot of reading to do uh, over the coming Christmas break, and on top of that, I did. I have watched one monster film uh, called The Monster on Netflix. There's not much of a monster in it. So is that the one with the woman and her the daughter car? trapped in a car? Yeah. Yes. I thought that was okay, actually. It was. Yeah. So I. So yeah. So there's a, there's um, an alcoholic mum raising her daughter. They seem to be constantly arguing, and the daughter's now going to go with her dad. And she decides to travel all through the night, through a storm, through the back roads, where they then, it's not a crash, the, the monster kind of hits them, and they're stuck on the road, and the monster likes to play with its food. So when people come to rescue them, uh, like um, a guy comes with a uh, tow truck, and he gets his arm bitten off, and you think, you know, he, he's gone for, and then like, you see him crawling on, trying to get to his truck, and the monster just kind of lets him get to the truck, open the door, and then grabs it and eats him. So, and it it was fun, but it wasn't quite what I was expecting. As a person who lived in the Midwestern United States, is that normal? This is just the kind. <laughs> this is just the well, almost. But uh, this is just the kind of thing that you like. I guess if you're one of those people that goes swimming and you're like you're swimming in the sea and it's just deep water and you're afraid of like something like tickling the bottom of your foot or something like that so if you're in the midwest and you're driving along like these really lonely stretches of road in the midwest where you can go 20 miles without seeing anything it is it's another one of those things in the back of your head like where if i break down there's no mobile phone signal like what what could happen and this mother and daughter they get they break down but i think the really nice thing about the monster is you don't really see that much of it they they take a they take a page from jaws's book and they only show it to you when they absolutely have to or when it is a good time to do that so i think they really went with the less is more and i think it paid off for them because it is a fairly low budget film but it uses all practical effects it's got uh, decent characterization because again it's just a mum and her daughter in the car so it's those two characters that hold the entire story 
So I think that they, they're very ambitious with that film. I have to give them kudos. How for does it. the monster look? Humanoid. Um, it's, I'm trying to think. It's oh. got a large fanged maw. Uh, its forelimbs are longer than the hind limbs. Um, Simeon-esque. Um, definitely a mammal. Um, I wouldn't give it a little bit like a little bit like the Ghostbusters dogs. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Minus like a really the chunky one yeah, minus, yeah. The, yeah. minus the horns kind of like ghostbuster dogs yeah yeah those are classic designs yeah but i think that you know like they did okay and um i'm glad yeah. you said that i'm glad you said that because we created that monster here at my studio oh, oh really? awesome <laughs> did you like how i drew you guys right into that <laughs> if you had said something bad about it that would have been okay too <laughs> Um, Werner Herzog, an incident at Loch Ness. I heard at some point one of the graboids. They didn't tell me necessarily uh, where in the making of, but I know that when you're watching that film, and like the only time where you really get to see the monster is where Herzog's thrown into the water. Spoilers, folks. Sorry. He puts the camera underwater, and you just see it kind of swimming by. But all that you're seeing is just basically graboid hide minus the little. Um, I wonder what. Oh, I wonder if. Um, I wonder if K and B did the. Did the effects because K and B did the TV series, uh, the Tremors TV series. Yeah, and I, I guess they did number four. We loaned them our molds so that they could get because we weren't doing number four. So they may have done the effect that effect and reused that. That's good to know. I, I I like that. I like when something you do ends up in another. Digital companies do it all the time, right? They take assets, explosions, and parts and pieces of models and things and. And reuse. Them. I do it with producers. Just reuse them over and over and over. Yeah, <laughs> I I wish you did that so I could get a break. <laughs> so I could get a bloody break. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I think that wraps up the first pass nicely. So let's have a quick break, and then we'll be back in a minute. When it comes to working at Geico, our best advocates are our employees, like Maxine. But since she's so focused on growing her career, we hired an actor to read her story. At Geico, I love mentoring the new associates to help them make this a career and not just a job. And with new opportunities and job stability, Geico has been helping people grow their careers for over 75 years. The only downside, she still hasn't met the gecko. Where are you, fella? Ready to start your career, Kansas City? We're hiring claim sales and service agents. Apply online today at geico.job slash Kansas City. We're always driving to dance lessons. So we signed up for Know Your Drive. We save money and get closer to her dancing dreams. The daring young man on the flying trapeze. Or maybe her singing dreams. Sign up for Know Your Drive and save up to 20%. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Products not available in every state. Discount terms apply. Visit amfam.com slash drive for details. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, SI, and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, and welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. We've all been talking what we've been up to, so now let's dive deep into making perfection. Um, I think, first of all, we just want to know, how, you know, how did um, you come to be involved in this project? Who else, Guy? <laughs> Who was Matthew? Matthew's Matthew, Matthew are you the leader? Head of it all. Yeah. He, he's the perpetrator. Yeah, it's all my fault. Um, it came about because I look after the Tremors YouTube channel for Universal, ah. um, along with about 150 other YouTube channels for Universal. And we, we, you know, we're in touch with the studio all the time, and they told us that they just greenlit Tremors 7. And this was 
uh, the beginning of 2019, and they said, "What, what, what can we do to to really give something back to the fans?" And we, I said, "Well, probably the 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 obvious thing to do is to make a, a, tell the story of Tremors, how it came to be. Uh, the fans are fervent, and." They love the movie and they love the franchise so much, and, and we should celebrate that. So, really, that was the genesis: was to make a piece of substantial content for the fans that we could put on YouTube. So then we went through the process of, you know, all the the stuff of, you know, getting my ideas approved and the budget and so on and so forth, and then we went kind of quite rapidly into into pre-production. Okay. So, uh, can I just clarify? So, Tremors is owned by Universal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And you work, do you work for Universal? I do. You do? Okay. Because, obviously, if you're doing lots of YouTube channels, is that, are they Universal YouTube channels? Or is that, they are, right, okay. Didn't know if if YouTube were part of Universal and I just missed that. No, we'll probably buy them one day, you know. But, um, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an army of channels that we look after. Juan um, has talked about Chucky, Downton Abbey, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, oh, I love that. Tons and tons and tons. Curious George, Woody Woodpecker, you name it. Um, <laughs> so is there an art from switching to Chucky to Downton Abbey? Or like, <laughs> your dreams yeah, must be like a scary place. I mean... My whole well. life is a scary place. You should speak <laughs> to my analyst. Um <laughs> Yeah, you just change gear. Um, you know, you get to know the content. And, you know, a Downton Abbey audience is very different to a Chucky audience, which is very different to a Tremors audience. You should do a mashup, see if it works. <laughs> I wouldn't be allowed. I did actually propose it, believe it or not, but it, um, uh, it was not allowed. <laughs> You're going to have, like, an army of listeners now. It's like, we would like to see Chucky in Downton Abbey, please. Yeah, there's going to be a hashtag <laughs> created now. <laughs> unwrap chucky something like that yeah, maybe right. maybe we could do maybe we could do a historical version of uh, chucky where he goes back to uh back to the 1930s or something and um well, there's always like victorian dolls that are so creepy so i mean it would you know <laughs> my partner up. collects them oh lord you have no idea and like when you pick chucky. them up their eyes open well, I'll tell you a secret. I've actually held the original Chucky doll in my arms, and it was Ooh. a very, very humbling moment. That's cool. And I've always said, if Juan and I ever had children, it would be Chucky. <laughs> <laughs> All your genes. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. But it will have a Spanish accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Juan, where does a producer come into this so we've, we've got Matthew starting it off and I mean producer obviously produces something are you part of the pitching process do you just make it happen describe the role will you? so um, I work for Nemory in film and video and I collaborate uh, um, I collaborated with uh, Matthew in the past Matthew takes care of everything that is in house within Universal so once it's all approved and green lead he just basically comes to to us uh, and we just discussed what the process is going to be, etc. And we previously uh, had worked together um, doing a video, like a little promotion for the anniversary of Colombo. Um, and that 
came out quite nicely and then uh, we uh, worked together on the Woody um, Woodpecker documentary, Bird Gone Wild, about a couple of years ago. That was very well received with the fandom. So when the Tremors conversations were happening, we were on the back end of finishing Woody Woodpecker. So it kind of, um, that conversation was already going while the process of, you know, getting the budget and all the approvals uh, was happening. So by the time we got the yes, we were pretty much, you know, ready to, to go or at least have like the base of ideas or what we wanted to, to touch on. And, uh, and really the process was just really organic because, um, it was uh, starting with um, uh, Steve Wilson, who was uh, happened to be in London uh, on on a personal holiday, which is on a trip, and um, by chatting to uh, Matthew was chatting to to some of the writers of Tremors. Um, it was just a coincidence, so we quickly just arranged to do an interview, um, and really it was just when we finished uh, that interview that we realized, you know, how how much good content we already had only with that one interview and, and everything after we um, just fell, just followed really organically as well. Like I think it was, that was in November and in January we were already um, in You a, have a short memory, my friend. You it was in November. <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh, it all just fell into place. It was all yeah. <laughs> Well, once it got approved, it, it, it yeah, yeah, was, yeah. How long was it in the edit? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Well, we're, to we're talking how we started it. Yeah, so yeah, that yeah. was that was that was kind of like you know. I do remember that brainstorming session we had. It was very productive. We were thinking about different ideas, how we could approach it, and that was really good. And that was in January 2019. 2019 yeah. yeah. And and all of that fed into the pitch into mm -hmm. Universal Los Angeles. Okay. And that was the the, the central thought from that was you know. It's for the fans. Every mm -hmm. decision we make about this film is like, will the fans like this? Right. Yeah. I mean, so it was really cool. Yeah. Awesome. And how did you go about getting everyone to come back like 30 years later? And was it, was it quite tough? Did you have to you know, convince them or, or were most of them quite excited to be celebrating it? It was just a question of kind of picking up, well, not really picking up the phone, but just tracking people down. And Juan makes a really good point. We, we were very lucky with Steve being in London on holiday and he gave up, you know, several hours to come to the studio and do the interview. And that, 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 that kind of was the needle in the arm that we needed in that Steve is the original brainchild behind Tremors. And it was such a great interview and he is an adorable man and we just talked and talked and talked. I think that was one of the longest interviews yes, it was. Uh, we did. It was three, three and a half hours. It yeah, just went yeah. on and on and on. Wow. Um, okay. And I think that day, we, it was a, a really intense day because we, we, we interviewed Steve and Jonathan Melville, who wrote the uh, unofficial guide to tremors. And then straight after Jonathan Melville, we interviewed Christopher who was the producer on the second movie. And he just happened to be in London because he was making a, a new Tom and Jerry castle. Um, so it was actually quite easy getting people because um, everybody responded, everybody responded quickly. And a lot of it was cold calling. It was just tracking people down in LinkedIn or you know just various means because everybody had such a great time on the movie. 
and it there there's an affection that the cast and the crew have for it that makes them want to talk about it. It wasn't an unpleasant experience. It was a very positive and unique experience for a lot of the people involved. So in that regard, it was it was relatively easy to, to get people um, on board. Okay. And except except oh. Kevin. Okay. <laughs> He was he was the hardest to pin down. Was he? Well, we just got it at the end. Um, it was pretty much um, his availability. You know, was like changing so much that um, we we had to like change our trip and go to LA earlier and just kind of be you know on standby when he would have a gap for us mm. because obviously he had. A, and I think that was actually the most stressful moment of the whole of the production of this documentary because. We were like, Matthew and I had just like landed in LA. I can't remember. We had been to Universal Studios. No, we, we, were, we, were on, we were at the YouTube studios. In Los we were in the YouTube studios, but we were coming from and Universal. Was, and I had a Chucky yeah. doll that they have gifted me. And we had some luggage and we were a, bit, a little bit jet lagged. And we were crossing the motorway because they told us the studio of YouTube. <laughs> anyway, it was a really random place. And you're feeling like post-travel, carrying a Chucky doll in one arm and, and dragging a suitcase through the motorway. And then my phone rang. And then my phone rang and it was six o'clock at night. And we were just like, just ready to get home and open the wine. And, and it was Kevin's people saying, okay, uh, you've got him tomorrow at 9 a.m. And we didn't have a studio. We didn't have a crew. Um, Eric wasn't available. And I, I, I just sort of, this is what the producer does. I just, here's, I was with the phone and I went, ah, here you go. Sort it out. Can you sort it out? <laughs> So literally, that was. Yeah. So a producer, a producer is really just a fixer. That's that's what you are. You're like the Winston Wolf of uh, documentaries. There you are. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what well, can happen? Yeah, and um, so I you know, said one interview. One interview took three hours um, of time. So did you just kind of ask a, a general question, and they would, would just reel off all their memories about trimmers, and then you had to just try and find the perfect pieces kind of slot together no, I, I didn't ask any general questions um I, everything was was scripted in advance uh, ah, okay. ev all my questions for everybody were were different and bespoke because if you don't do that it's just obvious you're kind of phoning it in and i i spent a lot of time researching everybody that i interviewed and and then you're doing a kind of a matrix operation of trying to and sort of put the questions together to the people that are going to give you the answer that you think you might get because you've got an idea of what the structure is going to be in your head. Um, and you think, well, this person can speak to that point and this person can speak to that point and then this person speaks to this point. And then to a degree you get that, but that's kind of the joy of it because then you just don't get any of that, but then you get something brand new that you haven't expected. So you're constantly tessellating all of this incoming kind of content that's coming at you. But the Steve interview was so long because that was the first one we did. And I, we went through kind of almost his entire life story chapter in verse, because then I thought, well, hey, at least I've got everything, you know, there's, there's no stone left unturned. But then you can kind of draw on different stories. Do we want to pull, do we want to talk about Steve's, 
early influences, Ray Harryhausen. Do we want to talk about how he how he met Brent and Ron, his relationship with Nancy, the genesis of the idea, the reception, the VHS side of things, and so on and so forth, and the, and the fans. So that was kind of like, in many ways, the, the kind of the spine of the film. And Ian can talk to that because I know that he he kind of used that interview really as a kind of central spine that yes. I just came out with an axe every other week. Steve just laid out the entire story of the genesis of the idea from sitting on a rock in the desert and thinking, what if there were sharks in the sand all the way to today? It was that's pretty much the framework of the entire documentary because he he was you know so involved in every single aspect throughout the way. Um, but everybody, uh, as the editor on the project. Like you said, you're looking for ways that people answered it differently. Oh, maybe there's, I think I was looking for conflict, but it just became evident that everybody who worked on it had just the greatest time in the world. And it was, uh, you know, everybody was had a, a glowing um, recollection of what it was like on set and and just to watch the movie back. It, it was It was pretty... I don't know. You you have this cynical view of like making a Hollywood movie, uh, but everybody seemingly on that set had the, the greatest time of their life. Mm. And, and just on that, I just want to go back to the, the the Kevin Bacon interview and that whole drama around you know not having a studio. Had we not had Eric, who was our hero, who came to well, I say the studio, we actually shot it in a kitchen at Universal, in the office. Um, I think it uh, can't be understated how much of a, uh, a break room kitchen that was. You know, <laughs> with, you know, the fridge groaning away, the AC going on and on and on, people pattering around, blah, blah, blah. But Eric did such an incredible job to make that setup just look incredible. It definitely helped to have a great team. And of course, our interview subject being uh, such a professional and just being able to come in, have those distractions around and still be able to, to answer the questions and, and be in the headspace to give good answers. So, yeah, so because there, there, were, there, there were also, I think, about nine cameras pointing at him as well because the, the social media team were filming it as well. And I was just thinking, oh my God, he's just going to freak out. It's just like cameras, 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 cameras. But, you know, I mean, he's Kevin Bacon. I mean, he spent his whole life in front of cameras. I didn't really need to worry about that. Well, Alec was on the receiving end of one of these interviews. So how did you find it? <laughs> I, uh, I had a great time. And you guys are absolutely right that any of us who worked on the movie have such a fond feeling towards the film that generally we're always willing to talk about it and uh you know eager to share it with fans and um you know i think i i guess it was i, I can't remember was it both of you matthew and juan that initially contacted me via email was it a was i it think the it was me initially alec because uh -huh. i think i i approached you because you had some footage um right. from back in the day and i said can i use this on the youtube channel and that was in the summer of 2018, I think. Oh, right. Okay. So we had been kind of conversing. Yeah. A little I just, bit, yeah. I just remembered that with um, Matthew and Juan, they, <clears throat> like myself, they care deeply about what they're doing, but 
you don't really, you try not to show it a little, you know, like you have fun with it. And, uh, yeah. and, and so, you know, we always had some very fun email exchanges that bordered on the unprofessional, which is exactly how I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun that you say that because, you know, when we were actually filming and Alec, you were there when we went to the YouTube studios to film it in that the, the YouTube studios in Los Angeles are incredible. I mean, they are enormous sound stages. But we're a tiny crew, and we've got these huge cavernous spaces that are freezing cold, pitch black, and you just walk in there and you think, how can anybody be creative in this? So Brian and I just muck about, really, and, you know, just giggle and pretend that we are massively incompetent. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which isn't Very that difficult <laughs> and Eric very quietly just lets us do our double act while he's like beautifully painting with light in the corner and um, and we're just kind of you know fooling around and tripping over cables and that kind of thing it's not the job right just working through the distractions yeah exactly it's really lovely to just see the background like story of how all of that came together because a lot of folks, I don't, well, I, I know that some of the people that I speak to on a regular basis, they, they just don't understand necessarily how lights and the editing of an interview can make it that much more dynamic and piece it together. And mm. it can really add a lot of layer to what could just be like a full on profile of someone just talking like we are right now, you know, in front of our webcams. It just makes it so much more dynamic and interesting. And I think that it's just really cool to see that process taken apart for this documentary. So this, thank you guys. I appreciate that. Paul, I think you had a question. Good, sir. I was just going to ask about the cast and um, did you get to spend any time with them off camera um, or was it, they kind of came in for the interview and then, and then left or did you get to have a, like a, a beer with Bert Gummer? You know, <laughs> I did have a beer with Bert Gummer. Oh, did you? And that's a, yeah, I did. Wow. And that's actually this is on Paul's camera. dream. <laughs> um, he, he, that man is just, he's just one of the nicest people you could ever meet. And, yeah, he's adorable. Um, he really is. And I did have a beer with him because when we went to Lone Pine, um, we arrived, I think it was on like Friday lunchtime for the, the fan event. And the Friday evening, there was a, a drinks reception at the museum. And I will never turn down a drinks reception. And we got there, grabbed the drinks. Eric was filming. And for some reason, none of that footage ever saw the light of day. And I, to this day, I don't know why. But um, <laughs> I... <laughs> Wasn't pertinent to the narrative. I just, I had to cut it. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But it was on that occasion that I, I, I strong-armed Alec into naming a graboid, a, a, a shrieker after me. Do you remember that, Alec? No, refresh my memory. <laughs> because because it, was a, it was free drinks. Yeah. So that's why I don't remember. Free drinks. And I said, look at that shrieker. I, I, and I was sort of like camera rolling. Okay, heavy hint. Well, well, that shrieker, you know, I mean, I think, I think he needs a name, doesn't he, Alec? What, what kind of name do you think we should give it? <laughs> and I eventually kind of dragged it out of you. And surprisingly, that didn't make it into the film. Either. That's brilliant. Uh, well, I feel like we should take our second break now. And when we come back, Alec, I would love to hear about the design of the Graboid and 
where that came from and how you put it together. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxwain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. We're always driving to dance lessons. So we signed up for Know Your Drive. We save money and get closer to her dancing dreams. The daring young man on the flying trapeze. Or maybe her singing dreams. Sign up for Know Your Drive and save up to 20%. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Products not available in every state. Discount terms apply. Visit amfam.com slash knowyourdrive for details. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, and welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. When we left off before our last break, Alec was going to take us through the Graboid and how it came to be. Alec, you are a legend that needs no introduction in the special effects world, and I would love to know where Graboids come from. You mean their true origin story? I mean... Are they from outer space? Are they prehistoric? Are they nuclear radiation? (laughs) I mean, take me through it, man. I mean... Well, the truth is, um, we loved the the fact that uh, Steve Wilson and Brett Maddock never answer that question. Uh, you know, we, I remember when we started the film, um, sometime during production, we sat around and they kind of came, came in. They were frustrated with studio notes. They were sort of going, ah, the studio's telling us we have to show a buried spaceship or a drum of radioactive ooze or what and they say can we see a show of hands how many of you feel that you're missing what the backstory of these things were nobody raised their hands nobody we all now how many of you like that it's unanswered like that's a great so they're like okay the answer to the note is put all three in and make it speculative and i thought that was just brilliant because it is about you know you're there with the characters and you're reacting with them in real time so nobody has time to get to the bottom of what these creatures are, or they just are. And uh, that's what we love. But we did have to, in design, Tom Woodruff and I had to um, kind of think about all three of those explanations and try to work aspects of it so that you could, each one would still be plausible. Uh, and of course, like with radioactivity, we've seen enough of those movies where a Godzilla or something like that, that looks like a, it doesn't look like a freak. It's not diseased. You can go that direction, but we didn't want to make the graboids look like there was something, you know, freakish about them. We wanted them to look like they were either prehistoric or they could possibly be alien or that nuclear radiation caused them to evolve in a, in a kind of a um, wicked and sensible, believable way. I read a really cool uh, speculative biology blog somewhere. And what they said is that what you could use to make it work would be a cephalopod. So like a squid, it would be a Mm -hmm. land squid because Mm -hmm. they have a beak and they have tentacles that could in theory through evolution migrate into the maw and they do have a mantle. Um, They can do a variety of things. They're sensitive to sound and stimulus, but you know, like that was one of the more ingenious ones that I came across. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we do like, you know, one of the things that we clicked with Steve and Brent and Ron Underwood on was that, uh, you know, we love going back and finding a biological backstory to a creature um, because that even if it isn't on screen, it's, it is something to kind of, you know, there's a hook there that you as a designer can, can think about. It gives you some mental parameters. And I believe it was Steve and Brent that came up with this little thing of those little pushing. Um, yeah. Hairs you know. on analytes. Worms actually mm-hmm. have those. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and we're like, that's a great one. There's a, there's one. Right. And then, you know, of course, we were looking at, you know, what else has been done. There was uh, the um, land sharks from, uh, there, there was an Outer Limits episode, sand sharks, I believe they were, uh, where there was something under the sand, you know, and, and and they were little hand puppets with big giant teeth and stuff. And then, of course, there was Dune. And Dune went with a uh, earthworm kind of, mus- all muscular, you know, makes a lot of sense it's kind of winding its way through but we didn't feel like that was going to give a what we were calling terra dynamic kind of quality to it that that these these worms had to be like freight trains underground so they had to have power and our thinking was let's give them a hard shell beak that you know comes to a battering ram a head that just yeah pushes everything away um and is pretty indestructible. And then the muscular body behind that, that would theoretically undulate, you know, peristaltically, those moving little grabbing, pushing little, little uh, spines as well. Um, And so all those things were kind of coming together. Dinosaur, we're looking at dinosaur art, you know, for skin texture reference and inspiration. And uh, this was a, a huge amount of fun for us because we had, just left Stan Winston's. We worked, Tom and I met at Stan Winston's studio. So we worked on Predator, Monster Squad, Leviathan, Aliens, um, Alien Nation, a bunch of episodes of Amazing Stories, Pumpkinhead. We had done a lot of that kind of stuff. And a lot of it was slimy monsters shot in dark spaces. So for us to have the opportunity to do something in broad daylight that had to look really, really real was, uh, was a big challenge and, and very exciting to us. Um, and so we basically just lifted the model of the VFX model, uh, MO of aliens, which was, you have a full scale queen and then you have quarter scale miniatures shot as tabletop and you have seamless intercutting between the two. That's what we were pushing. And Gail Ann Hurd was producer on both tremors and, and Alien, so she was already on board, and we were like, and you should use the Skotak brothers, Robert and Dennis, who have won Oscars for this stuff, so bring them in, and we'll build the miniature puppets, they'll build the tabletop sets, and we'll put them together, and it'll be golden magic, and it was. That's really cool. So what what were the Graboids made out of? I've seen a couple of making of films, and I've seen a couple of uh, really incredible cosplayers, you know, come up with some different things. Like, how do you make a Graboid? Well, we uh, we start with a, a big, gigantic clay sculpture and, um, you know, a ton of water-based clay sculpting on the platform for, for weeks and weeks. And then we make a fiberglass mold from that. And from those fiberglass negative molds, we cast up our positive foam latex skins, which we reinforced with hoops of aluminum um, 
banding that would give it a little bit of shake and keep it as lightweight as it could while giving it um, still some enough movement to be hand puppeteered. Because at that point in our history, we were not very confident with full-scale hydraulics or pneumatics. We just hadn't done it yet. But what we had done were big, direct, control puppeteered uh, things. So, and, and we didn't want to go out into the, the to the desert with something complex that could jam up because grit and sand get in it. And, and then we're like, you know, it will be a big, heavy mechanism. And how do you, as a default, you just want to get in there and muscle it around. Uh, so that's why we kept the construction of the full scale very simple. Fiberglass head, foam latex body, aluminum banding on the inside, and big giant speed rail rods, essentially, that you could puppeteer the head with cables, big lever cables that would open and close the jaws. And then we left the real athleticism to the quarter scale puppets and those were uh, either hand puppeted we love to have good old-fashioned hand puppets um whenever we do things like this uh cable articulated uh mechanisms again you know like bicycle brake cable that sort of thing a little more sophisticated but to to create the um jaw movement and head movement and um and and just a variety of those puppets to give us different looks and different um different uh, abilities for for any given beat in any given moment so something that's always been fascinating for me is tentacles so we have these three guys that come out and obviously that they're too long for one arm so the pneumatic was it pneumatics that you used for the tentacles? No, those or? would all be those would all be cable mechanisms as well okay so cable, okay yeah yeah so take me through cable mechanisms. So on the inside, we have rings. I've kind of seen them. And you yeah. have like a latex outside. So the cables on the inside, are they, are, are they on like any kind of frame on the inside? Or well, if you, if, if you imagine a, a central spine of, mm -hmm. of a flexible material, like, like if you think of a garden hose, you couldn't okay. use a garden hose. I'll tell you why. But if you think of a garden hose that has discs attached to it every inch, and then you have cables that run through to, you know, from disc uh, one at the base to disc 10 out of 30, right? At disc 10, when you pull that cable, it starts to move from that point back. So that's how you can get like an S-curve out of them. Like you get a cable where all, all your cables uh -huh. end here and it'll pull, it'll pull this way. And then you stack them so you have sections that can curve and move and they can do that in counter, uh, you know, counter action. And you have the way we designed the big levers was that you'd have gigantic pulleys, one pulley that would be aligned this way, another would be aligned this way. So when you move it in a joystick fashion, the tentacle responds in an undulating way. And you have to get used to this so that you can puppeteer it. And, and we had probably our longest tentacle was eight feet that was mechanical in that way. And we had three of them. We built three tentacles this way. And each one would require two puppeteers. So with actually a third puppeteer because the head itself was yeah. on its own, you know, uh, it had its own joint and, uh, and that guy had a cool, we, we took an orthopedic back brace and built the mechan the uh, controllers onto that so that he could have a little bit more mobility and uh, move around a little bit. Those were the most sophisticated pieces that, that we built. We also had 12-foot-long tentacles that were just foam rubber 
with a rope down the middle of them so they wouldn't rip in half. And those we would pull them in reverse and, you know, shoot that in reverse or, or just, you know, we could use those in any number of simple ways using reverse photography uh, or, or uh, sometimes under cranking, you know, to 20 frames a second, for instance, like the famous shot where the, you know, where the mouth opens and all the tentacles come out yeah. to, towards camera. That's a reverse action shot where, where we, would, we would start with the tentacles posed nicely right in front of the camera and, and they're all slimed up. And then on action, we would pull them in, close the mouth of the creature and stand him up. And then in reverse, it looks like he goes, wow. And then the tentacles all come out. It's a beautiful technique. We didn't invent that technique. We stand on the shoulders of people like George Melier. Um, but that's how we applied the technique to, to really, you know, bring life to them and, and, and make them feel like they aren't just rubber puppets. That's always the goal. I remember being less than eight years old. I don't remember the exact time, but I remember going into a local VHS video rental store for our listeners who weren't around at that time period. There are these stores back in the day before streaming and the internet really took hold. Believe me, folks, there was a time and you could go and rent a VHS video that went in a VCR and, you know, you could watch these films for a little while and then you return them. It was like a library. Anyway, um, I remember being less than eight years old because I remember when we moved from one area to another, but my father took me in and he, he was really great in some senses, but at the other time there was a bit of questionable parenting on others because he'd take me to the sci-fi section, you know, past Captain Planet and a few other things. And then we would go to sci-fi and kind of explains where I am now. But uh, I remember seeing the actual Tremors box art where it's just the um, tentacle underneath the ground. I mean, it's quite iconic now, but you know, you have our three main protagonists just standing on the ground and there's this big tentacle underwear. And I looked at the, I looked at that, and I go, "That's too scary." And I moved on to the next thing. But I love, I love the tentacles. They, they have, a, I'd say, they have a good portion of the graboid's personality in them. Um, I'm going to ask now because you already hinted that you love hand puppets. Were any of the tentacle heads hand puppets? Yeah. In fact, um, we were so absorbed, Tom and I, in making the tentacles in that mechanical way that I described to you. And we knew we'd have to have full scale uh, floppies, all that stuff, but we totally were ignoring the hand puppet. And Brent Maddock would say, you guys going to have a hand puppet? And we were like, no, this is, it's, it's 1990 Brent. We don't. (laughs) And he kept asking and asking. And we were like, you know what? He's got a point. Uh, Because you never know when something's going to break down or what it, we built that hand puppet. We used it a lot, like coming out of the sand, you know, when they're like poking the stick and, and it, and they bites the the stick, you know, we'll get a little shot of a, of a, of it coming out, you know, biting. There's a, there's a great moment where they're in the back of the truck and, and, and a tentacle rises up and Kevin punches it. And that's, that's Tom with a hand, his hand in a hand puppet. (laughs) Or smacking right. against the uh, the back windshield of the of the of the uh, station uh-huh. wagon, yeah. Yeah, hand yeah. puppets, and what about coming up from the sand when she's like digging for her husband? That's a hand puppet, right? He, probably. Think. We did okay. bury some of the mechanical ones in there too, but hand oh. puppets are great because they're they're just so specific. You know, you just have to find someone willing to be buried, you know, under there to do it, and that's <laughs> usually Tom Woodruff. He he was always game for that kind of thing. What a hoot. 
That's great. <laughs> well, it's great to know where they came from. It is, isn't it? Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, you know, if you guys, if you guys are interested, I don't know if you've seen our, have you seen our YouTube channel? Oh, Tremors. this is, this is a whole new kettle of fish for me. Please well, we promote have, the YouTube channel. You got to go to Studio ADI's YouTube channel. We have, I don't know how many Tremors videos. We shot a lot of stuff. You'll see all the behind the scenes Tremors video you, you want to see. And then you also have to check out Steve Wilson's YouTube video, which uh, YouTube video channel, which I can't remember the name of, but um, uh, I'm sure Matthew knows it because Matthew Matthew and Juan used some of his footage. Steve's father shot tons and tons of like shoulder held, you know, VHS. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it's back in the day. It's so great. Yeah. yeah. So he so he covered all of the like production and set building and all that, and then we covered creature effects building. So it's really really well documented. This little movie. Fantastic. So I'm going to ask a quick question. This is a bit cheeky, but did you guys leave a graboid like buried in the sand somewhere so that someone digs it up? It's like, ah! No, because there's always a, you know, you know, there's always this uh, knowledge and understanding that you're going to have to do pickups that, you know, when you leave principal photography, you better have all your stuff. And in some nowadays it's all, you know, getting cataloged by the studios and all that stuff. But back then it wasn't so much, but, uh, but we, you know, when we've hiked around most recently um, with the folks from the museum looking at the, the locations that we shot at, people get very excited because they'll pull a piece of something out of the ground and go, is this graboid skin? And invariably it never is because we just didn't, Yeah, I, I guess possibly there could have been some stuff that was used in the explosions. There was just hole. like she, there could, <laughs> Yeah, there is a hole, but you might be able to find something, but boy, after all these years, it'd be tough to. To find Someone could make a living and stand next to it. You Look, know. we found the hole. The, the hole, hole is there. A graboid oh, yeah. hole. There it's is a graboid burrow. It's a graboid burrow. I've be... got a bit of wood from Walter Chang's um, shop. Yeah, and yeah. I, can't, I can't find it, but I've got. Would, it would that hole be the same one from the shot coming out yeah. in front of Chang's, mm-hmm. or on the side of it? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. We found that where Tom Woodruff was buried, buried alive for a few hours. Yes, he was. He was mm-hmm. like Tutankhamun. <laughs> what a legend. So, um, so you touched a bit upon the, um, the Lone Pine weekend. Was that like, was that a reunion for the, for the for kind of for the fans and some of the people involved in the film? It, so it was. And this was one of these really, really lucky things that we, we booked our flights to Los Angeles and, and, and we started hearing about this reunion event, and it just happened to time that, that, that we could go there, that we were going to be around. And so we went, and it was it was amazing because we we'd met quite a lot of the cast and crew already, so it was like kind of a reunion for us as well. It kind of got a bit a bit meta. Really. It got really meta, really. There, yeah, it was the reunion for them and also for us, because at that point we already had like a little relationship with all of them. We had so much fun. Yeah, because we 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 shoehorned our way into the tremor. Family, right? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was pretty cool to see, you know, from like the queue of fans literally queuing outside of the museum, uh, you know, in January in Lone Pine. It wasn't particularly warm, uh, you know, like 8.30 a.m. Uh, with a queue going around the museum holding the, like, home-knitted graboids and, uh, you know, all the props and T-shirts and just seeing 
growing up with that film, but also with the added element that they are from there. So that film represents a lot to them. I always remember that young lady who, who, who had seen me chatting to Michael Gross, and she sort of came up to me and just quietly tapped me on the shoulder and said, Oh, do you do you think I can I can say hello to Michael? And I'm like, yeah, of course you can. Mm. And and I introduced the two of them, and then she just like burst into tears. Oh. And um, that's got, like the most, most wholesome that, thing. <laughs> we got most of that on camera because she was there with her father, and you know it was a big family movie for them as well. And it was nice that we could um, capture that. There was one point that I didn't make it into the documentary but a, a guy had shown up and he'd stood in line for a long time and then he found out he needed a ticket like he didn't have a ticket to get in so some the person behind them just gave them a ticket gave him a ticket and it's a really really like you, you can see the the heartwarming aspect that the fans are all there for each other and yeah he was just he was so grateful and it was it, it's a good moment that unfortunately, you know, didn't really fit into the story, but I remember it pretty vividly. It will live on in this podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we will spread the word. <laughs> Obviously, that's where the film was filmed. And so I suppose they're selling all the merchandise there. Here in the UK, there is zero Tremors merchandise outside of the films. I mean, I'm lucky that um, Joe was able to find, you know, a, a model of a Graboid. And I, I'd love that you're, documentary ended on the note of you know graboid underwear because it's something that i'd never expected to see you know you know i'd be happy for t-shirt but <laughs> you, you went out there you found some very interesting things for those of you who've seen the documentary we got it out of matthew he found that gem on etsy <laughs> we'll let you find which seller but there you go it's not just underwear it's erotic underwear it wasn't very difficult and, we have and, some and younger listeners just fyi <laughs> kids body, don't body google it don't google it I mean, it kind of comes full circle, uh, and I think that's what I was going for in the edit, because in the original design of the Graboids, I think, Alec, you'd say in the doc that you got told off for having it look too much like a penis, and so having a book ended at the end is... Uh, that's you know. funny, yeah. Yeah, we did uh, We did have a version of the Graboid that um, had a protective sheath, and uh, Gail Hurd said, all right, uh, I ran this, I showed this drawing to every one of the women in the office, and they're all saying, absolutely not. <laughs> so it's oh true. <laughs> I mean, I, I would just go looking for it, you know, like when someone says it. I mean, I think that's what um, the new Dune movie is going through right now, too. Oh, I think a lot of people yeah. have seen the designs of that and are, you know, it's not phallic, but it's the other kind. <laughs> Well, honestly, since H.R. Giger's amazing work on the first Alien with the Xenomorph, everything yeah. has it. You, you know, you're that's a design element, and and it's hard to it's hard to escape it. Honestly, I, I I'll sculpt the face, and someone will go, "That looks like it's got you know genitalia on it," and I can't for the life of me see that. But it's all Freudian. It's all and everybody. I says. think it says more about the viewer than it does about the artist, honestly. Well, yeah. I I paged through the Necronomicon. Uh, it is Giger's book, the Necronomicon, right? He wrote mm -hmm. that. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I got the title right. But uh, I remember uh, paging through that. It must have been ten, eleven, and I I just yeah. So uh, I was I was left unaccompanied in a bookshop. Because what trouble could I get into? I was looking at art books, but mm. uh, I went through the Necronomicon. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's hard to yeah see especially, the alien after seeing that. <laughs> especially coming from the mind of that guy who I don't know if you ever saw his trash truck series of paintings that no. he was he was in, in Switzerland in Zurich there was a, a trash truck that had the, the rear end of it had a certain kind of pattern to it that was he found very disturbing and psychosexual and he has some paintings of these and you go, Oh yeah, that guy was, that's what his genius. He was twisted from a very young age, saw things that other people weren't seeing. It was funny because I recently showed my partner, um, alien and aliens. And, um, I mentioned to her, you know, like Giger had this way of looking at them. And I think what makes a lot of men uncomfortable is because they become pregnant and they're, you know, penetrated in such a way. And, you know, there's a lot of uncomfortable things in there and it just turns a lot of sexuality on its ear. But then I told her, now, when you watch the facehuggers in the second film, when they come out, you will notice that they might look at something, look like something. And that is deliberate, you know, probably. And I, uh, I was just like, yeah. So the first one, she didn't, catch so much of it but the second one she was just like yep yep there it is okay there's it and then then afterwards i showed her some of giger's uh, works and it was really interesting like um i think it's the cover of the necronomicon maybe but it's the uh, alien with the head with the um yeah coming up and it's holding it and she just saw that and she's like ah ah <laughs> yeah. but we have digressed from graboid <laughs> socks <laughs> on that note <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's time uh, actually that we wrapped up. So if we would just like to say, if nothing else, and go through some recommendations for our listeners, I'll start off and say, if you, like me, have no Graboid merchandise and you want something, check out Invader Design, who um, do custom 3D models for you. So um, so Joe and Alec, the uh, co-hosts, kindly commissioned a Graboid for me, and I'm sure... You, know, you can get something nice there for yourself. Uh, Joe, do you have anything you'd like to recommend? So um, I was looking through your filmography, uh, Alec, and um, it's just basically like a lot of my favorite films, to be perfectly honest. Thank you so much for what you've done. Um, but I'm going to uh, give a nod to Starship Troopers tonight, which is oh, a good one. It is a good one. And um, I feel it's very on the nose for politics and satire, but there is a little bit of a hint of a graboid in the, uh, do we call them drones or warriors? I think oh yeah, the warriors. Yeah, warriors. the warriors. Yeah, the yeah. warriors. Yeah. They have that big beak. That looks well, awesome. and, and can I say that those designs did not come from our studio. Those designs oh, came really? from Phil Tippett. But when I saw the beaks, I thought, well, that's interesting. Fancy I like that. that. <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah. And, and 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 we we all stand on each other's shoulders. You know, there's a there's a there are other artists out there who are doing things that could be likened to graboidy style as well. Um, so I appreciate uh, I appreciate all that overlap. I like that inspiration, definitely. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Starship Troopers, give it a watch. It's a fun film for our younger listeners, though. Wait till your older kids. Yeah, it's a bit much. <laughs> Anyways, who would like to go did next? You know, did you know the beginning of Starship Troopers? Like the first like 15 seconds is like just a shot for shot um, remake of Triumph of the Will. Oh, right. Like that's what Verhoeven was doing. He remade oh. Levi Riefenstahl's like he like it purposely used that fascist imagery to send the message that this movie is, <laughs> you know, propaganda. 
Yeah. It's really, it's really like a lot of people have been writing articles about that movie being way ahead of its time. And uh, it definitely uh, was. Yeah. But yeah, there we go. That is my hearty recommend. Uh, Paul has done his. Alec, I just name dropped you. Um, would you like to go next? Well, as you know, um, I'm a practical effects artist, and um, sometimes we feel like our technique has been pushed to the sidelines these days in favor of digital techniques, which, by the way, I am a fan of digital techniques. I love them. I just don't think that one size fits all, and and, uh, I just want to encourage all of the young and -and up-and-coming filmmakers out there to continue looking at practical effects uh, for your films, because we're having a, a great relationship with um, directors these days uh, who are doing lower budgeted films and who grew up remembering VHS stores and wondering why effects from the 80s and 90s still look great and they don't and they hold up, they don't age in the way that some early digital work has aged. So to that end, I would like to once again plug our YouTube channel, Studio ADI's YouTube channel. We have over 300 uh, videos up. We have over 170 million views uh, and about a quarter of a million subscribers. So there is a big fan base of people who really like practical effects. So I encourage you to seek that out and you'll love it. And on that note, look for my short film. It's called Playtime and it's a meta sort of look at a 1980s Chucky type puppet who can't find work in a digital Hollywood. And it's a little bit autobiographical, but you might, you might enjoy Playtime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So please watch Playtime and uh, support your PFX so that we can continue having great movies like the original Tremors. Well said. Eric, is yeah. there anything you would like to recommend? Uh, nothing, nothing to plug or recommend right now. I just want to say uh, thank you guys for having us on. And uh, also thank you to uh, Alec Gillis for... Uh, allowing us to be a small part of the original Tremors family throughout this process. Thank you. You will always be part of that family from this point forth. It's a rather dysfunctional family, so. <laughs> we'll fit right in. Get ready for the reunions. <laughs> Ian, is there anything you would like to plug? I, I, I don't have much to plug. I work with the Nemerin, so check, check out whatever Nemerin's doing these days. We have Twitter, so you can check out what we're up to, what we're producing. Um, I did a I edited a short series called Spoka last year. It's sort of a parody of a Scandi Noir thing I did with people that I do comedy with uh, at the the Free Association uh, Improv School. So, yeah. Okay. So, what was the Twitter handle? My my uh, the Nemerin Twitter handle is uh, Nemerin Film and Video. Yeah. Okay. That's right. My my personal one is Chet underscore Friendly. <laughs> I was an early adopter, and I'm. Just going to stick with that name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I likewise, like um, Ian said, I'd like to plug to, to check guys uh, or Namorin uh, website and the stuff we're working on, but also to subscribe to the to the Tremors uh, YouTube channel uh, if you haven't already, so you can watch the full documentary um, Tremors Making Perfection. But uh, also all the extras. So there's like a full-length interview, uh, Nancy Roberts and Ron Underwood um, and loads of extra content. So if you haven't already, um, uh, subscribe and just keep updated on on all the new ones that will be coming on the, uh, the, on the next weeks on the lead up to Christmas. 
Right. Oh, super. Okay. Yeah. And the uh, the full length interview with Kevin Bacon is going live, I believe, this Friday. We're premiering it on YouTube, so that's going to be good. That's good. That's my plug. But I'm also actually going to plug um, our Woody Woodpecker documentary. Show. Oh yes, yes, that one too. Um, because that was a great project, and again, um, Eric shot it for us and did an amazing job. And if you think you know Woody, if you think you don't know Woody there'll be something in it for you. And it's just a really, really cute little film. Super. Awesome. I can't remember Woody. <laughs> I'm also going to say, uh, for folks who may not be aware, Arrow Video is uh, releasing the original Tremors in a 4K uh, format. So pick that up. Um, you guys' documentary, as I understand it, will appear in the special features. So that's brilliant. And uh, yeah, look for that. Um, Arrow always makes a fantastic release. And we're going to be speaking to James Flower and Matt Frank later on um, discussing that release because Matt did the cover art. Anyways, folks, as always, keep it kaiju and thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us at the Curry House today. We hope we've given you enough kaiju goodness to last until next time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Curry Kaiju. If you want to join us on Facebook, we're at UK Kaiju. And if you want to find out about other shows in the network, please visit heroespodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.